What does great faith like? Who are the people in your life that you think have great faith? And what is it about their faith that stands out from others? Is it their knowledge of the Bible? Is it their passionate gestures while singing? Is it the length and the eloquence of their prayers? Is it that their faith is educated and they have the answers to all of life's problems? I love stories about people who show great faith in God. And I love it even more when great faith is seen in someone who you would not expect it to come from. One modern example who's been a, a big encouragement in my life is someone by the name of Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, she's written a book about her conversion to Christianity called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, she is a university English and women's professor and uh, before becoming a Christian described herself as a gay feminist. This is her description before becoming a Christian. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS, activism, children's health and literacy, Golden Retriever Rescue or Unitarian Universalist Church, to name a few. It was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The GLBT community values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. And after writing a strongly worded opinion piece in a newspaper, a Presbyterian pastor sent her a letter challenging her prepositions, asking her how she knew that her opinions were the right one. Knowing only Bible verses that were plastered on signs of Christians protesting at gay rallies, she decided to read the Bible. She read it over and over again from, in multiple translations in the course of a year. She said that she devoured it like a glutton devours food. I continued reading the Bible, she wrote, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not to fit in. That line stuck with me this week as I meditated on our text this morning. Because like Rosaria Butterfield, the woman in our text comes to meet with Jesus. Not because she fits the mold, or she's the type of person that we would expect, but because she believed in him. Rosaria's story of conversion is surprising to us because she doesn't seem like the type of person that we would expect to profess faith in Christ, educated, worldly, disdain towards God and towards Christians. Yet the Lord worked in her heart. And gave her great faith. Well, in our text this morning, we're, we're going to see great faith from another surprising figure. One who does not fit our normal expectations. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. That's our text today. Mark 7, 24 through 30, which you can find on page 843 of the Bibles provided. 
And by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, feel free to take one of the Bibles underneath the seats as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word. We believe that He has spoken to us by it, that it is inspired and without error in everything that it intends to communicate. And therefore, we think nothing is more important than for you to have your own copy to read at home. In this text, we have an example of what great faith looks like in a surprising place. But before we read it, let me pray for us one more time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Would you speak to us by it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark 7, verse 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And he went home and found the child lying in the bed, and the demon gone. If you're confused what is great about this woman's faith, then you're in the same place I was when I first read this passage. Don't worry, I think as we make our way through it, it will become clearer. I've broken the text down into three points for you this morning. First, an urgent request in verses 24 through 26. Second, a surprising response in verse 27. And third, an amazing result in verses 28 through 30. An urgent request, a surprising response, and an amazing result. I pray that you would be encouraged this morning to pursue a deeper more trusting faith in Christ as a result of this text. First, an urgent request, verses 24 through 26. The text begins, Jesus is on the move. He's traveling. He leaves, I assume, the house that he was in in verse 17, teaching his disciples in chapter 7. He departs to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is northwest, the Sea of Galilee, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And we're not exactly told why Jesus travels to this area. Mark doesn't mention any kind of motivation to do so, but if I were to guess, I would say that Jesus travels to this region for the same reason he departed the last few times, simply to find some kind of relief from the people that were constantly surrounding him. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, we've seen him demonstrate a number of times his authority and power as God, and yet in his humanity we also see his need for rest at times. Jesus has made multiple attempts to do this, and every time he tries, people go looking for him. 
Way back in chapter 1, he is described as getting up while it's still dark, going to a desolate place just to pray. And even then, Peter comes looking for him and says, everyone is looking for you. More recently, in chapter 6, Jesus tries to take his disciples to a desolate place, and large crowds run there before they can even get there, and so they spend time teaching and then feeding a large crowd. Back in Jesus' day, you couldn't just hop on a plane and go to another country or hop in the car and drive a few towns over. Everyone could travel at the same exact speed and most likely on the same roads as you. And even in boats, Jesus and his disciples were followed. We read about that in chapter 4. Now, it could be that after Jesus' sharp rebuke of the Pharisees, if you were here last week, he called them hypocrites, not exactly a friendly comment to them. It could have been that he was removing himself before things got out of hand, but that's just speculation. My guess is that Jesus is tired and he's seeking a quieter place for rest, so he travels northwest to specifically non-Jewish areas where he's less likely to be swarmed. But even there... Jesus is heard of and sought out by this Syrophoenician woman. Tyre is about a day's journey away, just so you know. It's about 35 miles. Depending on the route you would take, it would take about 11 to 12 hours of walking time to get there. And we see the way that Mark describes Jesus not wanting anyone to know where he is, yet even still, it says he could not be hidden. And Jesus was not seeking any kind of notoriety. He wasn't the kind of teacher that did things simply to draw a crowd or be seen by others. It doesn't even seem like he really intended to draw large crowds at times. It just kind of happened around him. But when he does, he shows great patience. And this is the place where we read about this urgent request. And we know it's urgent. By the way, that Mark says that she immediately came to him meaning she wasted no time from the moment that she heard Jesus was in town. She came to him and fell at his feet. This is not something that you do when you just need a simple favor of someone, do you? Probably not. You don't run to them and fall at their feet and beg them for help. But this is what this woman does. And the reason is because her child is in danger. Mark doesn't describe what the little girl is going through exactly, but we know from other accounts that demon possession was no mild affliction. Remember the man in chapter 5 who dwelled in caves, cut himself with stones, shrieked day and night, wrenched apart chains that people tried to put on him. In chapter 9, when we get there, we're going to read about a, a boy who's possessed by a demon and, or an unclean spirit, we use both terms. And that causes him to have seizures, to grind his teeth and foam at the mouth. It even throws him into the fire and water water to kill him. So whatever the affliction was for the little girl, it must have been severe. And she may have even been close to death for this woman to seek out Jesus and fall at his feet. There's not many things that would cause me to do this. But if I were in a desperate situation, if my child was in danger, and I believe that a particular person had the authority and ability to save this, certainly would. Her daughter has a clean spirit, a demon. And I think it's safe to assume that being able to cast out demons or having the authority over them is probably one of the primary things that Jesus is known for. 
If you read through the Gospel of Mark, you might actually even think that it's common during his day because it just occurs so often, it seems. Uh, But I'm not sure it was really common, but it certainly was distinct and marked out Jesus' ministry. By the way, how did she hear about Jesus in the first place? Well, we're not really sure. Uh, In fact, this is the only time that we know that Jesus travels outside of Israel to these non-Jewish areas. Uh, In chapter 3, Mark describes people coming from all directions uh, to come to Jesus, and two of the places that are named are Tyre and Sidon. So word has already spread way up north to these people. But this is the first time Jesus has actually traveled to them. Well, not only is this woman's request urgent due to the dire situation, but the cultural context tells us something as well. This region that Jesus is in has not been so friendly to Jews historically. Uh, In fact, throughout their history, they would be enemies. A first century historian named Josephus called Tyre the Jews' most bitter enemies. Mark says this woman was a Gentile and a Syrophoenician, meaning under the Syrian province of Phoenicia. She's not only non-Jewish, but she is of the worst kind. That is what Matthew describes her as, a Canaanite woman. There are many passages in the Old Testament about Tyre and Sidon. By the way, these, these places still exist today in the country of Lebanon. That's why I decided to pray for them during the pastoral prayer. Uh, and there are still Tyre and Sidon exists, and there are ruins there that you can go and see. But in the Old Testament, there are long portions of judgment in Ezekiel due to their idolatry and their pride, their love of sin. But most famously, this is the same place that Jezebel is from, the Phoenician princess who caused quite an uproar in the northern kingdom in the time of Elijah. Simply put, this woman begging Jesus is an unclean person in an unclean land of the worst kind from the perspective of a Jew. Uh, It's quite a contrast from the previous section, isn't it? Where the Pharisees concerned with ritual cleaning, now Jesus is in the middle of an unclean land with a Canaanite woman holding on to his feet, begging him to heal her daughter from an unclean spirit. All of this points to the urgency of the situation, for her to cross all these boundaries and divides just to get to Jesus. And her urgent request is met by a surprising response. Point two, a surprising response. This is another one of those edgy Jesus moments, just like last week. You don't hear about this story all that often. It's not his most popular quote. It's not as popular as, say, love your enemies or whatever you wish others to do to you, do unto them. This thing that Jesus says is not typically what people put on T-shirts or on their bumpers. Jesus responds to her in verse 27. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, that's a little awkward, isn't it? What are we to make of this? Is Jesus calling this woman a dog? I'm not going to soften Jesus' words, but I will attempt to convey meaning that I think Jesus intended 
So just think for a moment about those words. What do you think Jesus means? Why would he say something like this? How would you explain this to someone who has never heard it before? Perhaps this is the first time you're hearing it today. Let me introduce you to Edgy Jesus. One day I'll preach a sermon series titled Edgy Jesus, and we'll just go through all these texts. Well, there's all kinds of speculation about what Jesus meant here. After all, it sounds derogatory, doesn't it? Sounds like he's calling her a dog, which, by the way, is a term that the Jews used in a derogatory fashion to describe Gentiles. But I think before we get carried away, we need to parse out a few words of the sentence. Jesus is not directly calling her a dog. At least I'm going to argue that that's not the main emphasis. But he is using the image of a family dinner, like a parable, to explain his mission to her. And I think that's the key, is understanding this statement as a parable. Parables always convey some kind of truth about the kingdom of God or about Jesus' ministry as a whole. So first we need to understand who are the children in this statement. Who could the children be? Whoever they are, they have some privilege. They eat at the table. They have food prepared for them. And since the request is for Jesus to minister to the daughter, to deviate from what he was doing, we can point out the fact that Jesus has been in exclusively Jewish areas pretty much the whole time up to this point. He was with his disciples most likely, so... His very title, Jesus Christ, is not a last name, but a Jewish indicator, anointed one, Messiah. It's an office specifically to describe someone from the line of David born in Bethlehem, come to save his people, his people being the Jews, ethnic Israelites, descended from the patriarch Abraham. Israel is repeatedly called God's children throughout the Old Testament. Not only is he their heavenly father, but he speaks of his people that he gave birth to in Deuteronomy 32. He describes himself as jealous for his sons and daughters. He's the avenger of his children. In Exodus 4.22, he calls Israel his firstborn son. And remember, he commands Pharaoh to release his firstborn son or else he will take Pharaoh's firstborn son. In Jeremiah 31, God says his heart yearns for his son, therefore he will have mercy on him. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Prophecy that described Israel's past and projected the birth of Jesus in Matthew 3.15. Jesus is the suffering servant of the prophet Isaiah, come to bring salvation to his people A new exodus occurs in Jesus. So Jesus is part of a long history, as you can see, of the Jewish people, which shouldn't surprise us if we know our Bibles. That's who the children are in his statement. They're the Israelites. Well, what about the dogs then? Is Jesus using this term in the same way to describe Gentiles the way Jews did in the day, as wild animals, as filthy scavengers. Well, I believe Jesus is using this distinction not to communicate separation or, or cleanliness or uncleanliness, but actually priority and togetherness. 
How could that possibly be? Well, the image Jesus, is, Jesus uses is a parable of a household dinner. It's not on the streets or in the marketplace. He's not speaking of a stray dog carrying rabies, but one that lives comfortably with the family. Uh, commentators have noted that there's a different word used than the normal one for dog in this case, and so some people translate it as little puppies. I'm not sure whether or not that's actually true, but I can help illustrate this with an illustration of my own. My son Elias, he knows what a dog is. He reads about Clifford, the the big red dog. He sees dogs around the neighborhood, many of which are not so friendly to us. Uh, But Elias has not yet learned that some dogs are dangerous or that he should stay away from them. In fact, every dog he sees, he refers to as puppy or nice puppy, even if it's snarling at us. But that's because he has a few puppies of his own that he carries around in our house. So his association with the animal is this cute, soft, stuffed animal to cuddle with. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is calling the Gentiles cute, soft, stuffed animals or anything like that. But I'm pointing out that there is, in fact, a difference between the dogs that we would let in our house and the dogs that we would not let in our house. There's a difference between, say, the coyotes eating roadkill out on the streets. The setting here, though, of this parable is the dinner. And that leads me to believe that Jesus is not intending insult, but obligation to his children. After all, if you read verse 27 again closely, you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say that you shouldn't feed the dog, period. He says you don't give the dog the children's food. And that's true, isn't it? It'd be wrong to take food away from a child and give it to a dog instead. I think we can acknowledge that. Jesus is not saying that the dogs don't get any food at all, but he's saying that his priority is to feed the children. We might be shocked by the language here, but we can agree that it would be wrong to only feed a dog and not a child instead. Jesus feels a unique responsibility to his people, just like I have a unique responsibility to my own child over other people's children. The next important word to parse out is bread. What exactly is the bread in this story? It certainly must refer to Jesus' ministry in general, his teaching and his healing, even the gospel of good news that we opened our service with this morning. Since Jesus is speaking about priority of feeding the children, he's speaking about the priority of his mission to the Jews. Remember, he is their shepherd, he's their savior. His attention is naturally going to be on the people of Israel before others. He is the one who fulfills the Jewish prophecies. Perhaps he was in the middle of teaching his disciples or eating with them when the woman came up to him. Either way, this woman appears to barge in, unwelcomed, interrupting, whatever it was they were doing. And up to this point, we've never really seen Jesus outright deny anyone, have we? Is that what Jesus is doing here? Sure, she might be pestering a little bit. She might be intruding on the Lord's rest, but even still, is Jesus refusing to help her in her dire need? I don't think so. He doesn't outright refuse her. I actually think what Jesus is doing is testing her understanding. 
Because the other important word of verse 27 is the word first. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. After staring at this single verse for several hours, it's clear that Jesus is in no way excluding Gentiles altogether. After all, God's promise, even way back in Genesis 12, verse 3, to Abraham, was that through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Israel was always a friend to the sojourner because they themselves were sojourners for a time. But here Jesus shows that his ministry is first to the Jews, implying that eventually the message of forgiveness and salvation would be extended to others. We don't like the idea of priority or privilege, but God in his wisdom chose to reveal himself to the world as the God of the Exodus, and then the God of Israel and the giver of their law. He chose to reveal his character in his law and through a particular people as they obeyed it. He created a nation. He established a throne. And from the line of the king he placed on the throne, he would bring their savior, Jesus, who would obey the law perfectly. He's the only one who could fulfill all the... And the sacrificial system rooted in Israel's history is how we know that Jesus' death on the cross means something. He went to the cross willingly to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins against God as a sacrifice. He rose from the grave defeating death so that those who repent of their sin and trust in Him would be saved. That message still stands today. If you haven't trusted in Christ, you can turn from your sin and believe in His death and resurrection today and be forgiven. Don't wait any longer if that's you. We wouldn't know who Jesus was or what his death meant if his life was not rooted in the history of the Jewish people. In his wisdom, God chose Israel to be the nation through which to bring about salvation to all people. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Last week, Jesus taught that all are defiled in the heart. Instead of hardening our hearts because we feel it's unfair that God chose Israel first, we should be amazed at His grace to to save anyone at all. And we should beg the Lord to extend that mercy to us as well. The Apostle Paul acknowledges this priority all over the book of Romans. But guess what? Their privileged status of having the law didn't make them any less sinful Paul says in Romans 2, verses 9 through 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. There's neither Jew nor Greek, think Galatians 3. Jesus' priority and his mission on earth is primarily to Jews. But there's no partiality given when it comes to salvation. That's why Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.17 Jesus speaks this way to the woman, not to demean her in any way, but to explain his mission to her. 
He's explaining that his message about the kingdom of God finally arriving with his own person has come to the disciples who would have been with him. Perhaps he was teaching them in that very moment about his mission. Of course, if you read ahead, you'll see how thick-headed they are. Despite his amazing miracles and private teaching sessions they've had with him, even the demonstration about providing bread in the wilderness, their hearts are still darkened. But to this surprising response, the woman, she shows that she has greater understanding than any of the disciples thus far. Her response teaches us about the meaning of Jesus' statement as well. And from her response comes an amazing result. Point three. An amazing result. After Jesus says these sharp words to her, she responds seemingly without any hesitation. In verse 28, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What did you notice about her response? Read it again and think about it for a minute. How was her response to Jesus' words different than your response when you first heard them? Notice the first word out of her mouth. Yes. Yes. There's no sign of insult. There's no sign of disgust. Does she seem shocked to hear Jesus speak in this way? Doesn't seem that way at all, does it? No, in fact, she agrees with Jesus. Yes, Lord, she says. I know. This is true. But even still, the dogs will accept even the crumbs of the children's bread. Her response is one of great faith. It's marvelous faith. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are only two times in the entire book that Jesus commends someone for having great faith. The first is in chapter 8 to Centurion, a Roman soldier. And the second time is this very woman in chapter 15. Her answer does not deny Jesus of his priorities or his responsibilities to the children of Israel. She shows him in her humility that she doesn't need the children's bread. Only the crumbs will do. At this moment, she shows more trust in Jesus and more faith in his power and mercy than the disciples. Perhaps she heard about the time he fed 5,000 men and how they had 12 baskets left over. Perhaps she, like the bleeding woman, knew that if she could just get the smallest amount of Jesus' power, it would be enough to bring healing to her daughter. Jesus says, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. What was it about her statement, you think, that impressed Jesus? What was it about this statement that caused him to change his answer to her? I think there are two things we can look at as commendable in her answer to Jesus. First, she shows great humility in this answer of hers. She recognized her place. She knew that she was unworthy as we all are. She was not entitled to receive any kind of attention or his mercy, but she begged him confidently. Friends, you cannot please God if you don't come to him with humility. 
That's the only way to come to Jesus. Recognizing our sin, knowing we deserve judgment, yet pleading for mercy. Jesus doesn't owe us anything. As much as we like to think that he does at times. We have a terrific two-year-old. Not to be confused with a terrible two-year-old. I have to get all my illustrations on him out now before he gets old enough to know that I talk about him in sermons. And we love giving him things. Uh, He's not always deserving of the things that we give him. And he's never less deserving than when he is outright disobedient to us. Friends, we have disobeyed God from the moment we were born. Yet God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like this woman, we know that we are not worthy. Yet we also know the power of Christ. Do you have faith like this woman? Faith in even the smallest amount of his power? Faith that he will provide for your needs? This woman doesn't want anyone else to lack or miss out on Christ. But she implores him that she will be happy with just a crumb of his attention. Just a crumb of his power will heal her daughter. She's one of the most humble characters in the gospel so far. And Jesus recognizes this great humility. Pray that we would be a church that exemplifies this kind of humility before God. Second, she shows great understanding in her answer. She wasn't just humbling, hum- humble, she was believing. It wasn't because she was clever, that she thought this up really quickly, that Jesus granted her request. Nor is it because of our intelligence or success or any outward merit that Jesus grants us forgiveness. It's because she has a believing heart. She trusts him completely. She shows understanding about the great importance of his ministry, and I would say that she shows that she doesn't mean to take his time or attention away from others. She understood that Jesus' ministry was unique and special. She agreed with Jesus that dogs don't need to eat the children's bread. But she responded humbly, saying, dogs don't need to wait to, to eat either. They can eat at the same time underneath the table from whatever crumbles down. Already she's shown great faith by simply coming to Jesus. Like I mentioned earlier, she's a Syrophoenician, Greek in her culture and in her ethnicity. Yet she crosses these barriers to seek out Jesus, the Jewish carpenter. She falls at his feet. It's not as though her culture lacked gods to to pray to, by the way. Her culture had plenty of magicians or mediums or fortune tellers or prophets. But she came to Jesus. She knows that only he has the power to bring healing. Not only does she go to these great lengths, but she calls him Lord. She calls him Master. Such humility and persistence and faith in Jesus. The point of this whole parable, I think, is not who the dogs are and who the children are. The point is who Jesus is. Is The point of the text is his power to save and how little of it will do just that. The woman's response is part of the amazing result of this story. Not only is her response an amazing example of faith, 
But the result of her faith is the healing of her daughter. Jesus grants her requests, and he sends her on her way. And she leaves. Jesus says in verse 29, For this statement you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home. She left without even questioning whether or not what he said was actually true. You know, when you have a really desperate need or some serious work being done, you want to make sure that it's actually taken care of right before you leave and just assume that the job was done, only to find out later that it wasn't and you have to retrace your steps and do it all over again. But this woman leaves. She leaves the same way that she came, in great faith. She was so sure of Jesus' ability to heal that she didn't need him to come with her. His word was enough. Brothers and sisters, do you have this kind of faith in the word of God? Is it enough for you? You might be sitting here today wondering how God can save someone like you. Or you may be struggling to believe that you can be saved. Both of these come from a similar place. The truth of the matter is that salvation is very difficult. In fact, it's impossible on our own accord. But because we are sinful, even us who have experienced God's grace and forgiveness, it's so easy for us to doubt our salvation at times. But for those of you who struggle with assurance, have you ever asked yourself why it is you struggle? What is it that decreases your confidence in your salvation? Is it not in part because you're relying too heavily on yourself? We're so prone to rely on our own mental state, personal track record of holiness, our own spiritual maturity. We forget that none of those things have the power of God for salvation. Only the gospel does. Friends, let me remind you about the good news of Jesus. The good news is that those things don't save us. If they did, it wouldn't be good news at all. The good news of Jesus is that by his wounds we are healed, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and that he has done these things not because of our merit so that anyone would boast, but because of his great love and kindness towards us. Salvation comes to all who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And if you are trusting in Christ, all you need are crumbs. Even the tiniest amount of his grace is enough to save the most wretched, the most unclean of sinners. That's all this Canaanite woman needed. And she knew that. She bet her daughter's life on it. And her trust in Jesus resulted in the healing of her daughter. Mercy is given. We've spent a lot of time on verses 27 and 28. I think rightfully so this morning. But it'd be easy to focus so much on those two verses that we forget to acknowledge the miracle. Jesus heals the daughter instantly. And he does it somehow without even leaving the house. He does it without shouting or spitting. He just heals her remotely. Jesus works remotely, just like some of you. So far, Jesus has shown authority over 
every demon he's come in contact with. But in this story, we learn that Jesus has authority over the demons, and he doesn't need to even be in the the same general area as them. Who knows how far this woman traveled. Tyre and Sidon are large areas of land. But Jesus doesn't even need to see the demon to cast it out. He doesn't even need to speak directly. How much power is a crumb of Jesus' power? Apparently enough to heal this little girl without traveling. Apparently enough to conquer demonic forces without even looking at them. That's the power of Jesus. How is it that this Gentile woman had such faith and understanding in Jesus and his mission when his disciples, who are with him at all times, still struggle to understand who he is? The answer can only be what's true of us still today. The Holy Spirit softened her heart towards Jesus, gave her understanding to know what we all know to be true, that we are like dogs, undeserving, wretched sinners that we are. As far as I know, uh, we don't have any ethnic Jews in this congregation, which means that everyone in this room has been given the same mercy of Christ as this Canaanite woman. It means that through God's providence and the people of Israel, and his mission, by the way, was to be rejected by them, he has extended salvation to the ends of the earth, to all who trust in Jesus the way this woman did. We only begin to see that in our text today. Jesus will go back. He'll travel down to Jewish territory. He'll be scorned by his people and executed in his innocence. His disciples will scatter, and after a loud cry, Jesus will breathe his last on the cross. And what does Mark describe to us in chapter 15 at that point? One person standing by, confessing, truly, this man was the Son of God. A Roman centurion. The first person to confess that Jesus is the Son of God on the cross, was a Roman centurion. Mark highlights and commends the faith of unlikely people all throughout the gospel. Mark has shown throughout his book that figures like this Canaanite woman, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Great faith is not a matter of heritage or family descent or education or any of the things I mentioned earlier. Great faith is made up of persistent hope and humble trust in the crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus. Pray that we would have that kind of persistent hope and humble trust in Jesus today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been merciful to us through your Son, Jesus. Every one of us in this room is considered a Gentile, non-Jewish. Yet in your mercy, through your Son, in his ministry to the Jews, you extended the salvation to the world. Lord, we pray that a day would not go by that we do not cherish this great truth. 
Help us not to forget the joy of our salvation in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.